This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. There's some exciting things going on out in space. We're going to talk about those with our good pal Matt Kaplan, the host of Planetary Radio, which is heard here on KDVS every Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. We've spoken with Matt before. He's always a lot of fun to talk to, and I expect today will be the same. So stick around for that in our second segment. And uh, let us begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History, our date today being the 21st of July. And it was on July 21st in 1904 that the Trans-Siberian Railroad was finally completed. It took 13 years of effort to lay the 4,607 miles of track. I would note that uh, in the last six months of the existence of the Soviet Union, this correspondent rode some of the Trans-Siberian, more specifically the Trans-Mongolian from Beijing to Irkutsk, Siberia. Even though that journey was broken by getting off in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and spending about a week, I must say that uh, the three or four days I got on a train was quite sufficient. To travel the full length of that journey from, say, Vladivostok to, uh, to Eastern Europe was more of a train ride than I was interested in. But, you know, it was a very curious experience. We'll have to talk about it maybe later on today's show, sometime. And oddly enough, on the very same day, July 21st, 1904, Louis Rigoli, driving a 15-liter Gobron Briel in Belgium, became the first man to break the 100 miles per hour barrier in a car. And no, please don't ask me <laughs> what other human beings had broken the 100 mile an hour barrier in in other conveyances, because I can't answer it. At any rate, Mr. Rigoli managed to hit 103.5 miles per hour that day. And on July 21st in 1969, Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin lifted off the surface of the moon and returned to the command module, which was piloted, quote-unquote, by Michael Collins. I mean, Mr. Collins did have some important duties, but as he sat in the command module (laughs) orbiting the moon, he wasn't doing a whole lot of, quote, piloting, unquote, duties in the conventional sense. Nevertheless, I think the whole thing was a marvelous, uh, marvelous adventure in the history of human beings, and I do wish that we would make July 20th, the day of the moon landing in 1969, a national holiday. And it's also horrifying to realize that was 42 years ago. And for the last four decades, we haven't been back. Sad. The astronauts did leave behind a plaque on the moon reading, Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind and womankind too. Although the plaque doesn't say that. One year later, July 21st, 1970, after 11 years in the making, the Aswan High Dam across the Nile River was completed. This may be worth a very slight digression on my part because I've always noted, like you probably did, dear listener, that when you studied about ancient civilizations... The great epic civilizations of Egypt were based upon the annual flooding of the Nile. This annual deposition of silt upon the shores of the riverbank replenished its fertility 
and made the area an agricultural breadbasket for 5,000 years. One would think with a winning formula like that, you wouldn't mess with things. But you'd be wrong. Probably the only nice thing you can say about this eco-disaster was the fact that at least the United States didn't pay for building it. After we got miffed at uh, President Nasser in Egypt, <laughs> we withdrew our support, and this was built on the Russians' dime. Noted the History Channel's Today in History, the source of most of our, uh, our uh, references in this section of the show, explained that this exploited a tremendous source of renewable energy, comma, but had several negative environmental impacts such as the fact that now dirt-poor farmers in Egypt have to buy fertilizer instead of having <laughs> their land annually replenished by the Nile. I don't know. I, th I think this might make history's 100 worst ideas list if someone ever got around to making one. But that's just my opinion, which, by the way, like all the opinions heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California who, so far as we are aware, had nothing to do with the high dam at Aswan. Our quote of the day comes from author Ernest Hemingway, whose suicide was, I believe, 50 years ago this month. Said the undeniably talented but sometimes full of hot air author, the best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. Our quip of the show also comes from Ernest Hemingway. I like this one even better. Said the Nobel Prize laureate, Always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. That'll teach you to keep your mouth shut. All right, for our jokes of the day, we're going to excerpt a few from Dave Barry's uh, classic calendar for 2011. Said Dave Barry, we need scientists to determine exactly what steps are required for successful human mating. And I don't mean some vague psychobabble about listening or being sensitive. I mean specific written instructions that we guys can understand, like caress the target region in a clockwise pattern applying 1.8 foot-pounds of torque. Wouldn't that be great? No, because we guys don't read directions. So I guess we're stuck with blundering around, learning what, quote, turns women on, unquote, through trial and error. Tonight I'll try vibrating my wings. According to a Reuters article, when a male fruit fly wants to have sex with a female fruit fly, he goes through a series of specific steps. The first one being to pound down about eight martinis. No, wait, that's what a human guy would do. What male fruit flies do is encourage a courtship ritual, which according to the article includes tapping the female, extending and vibrating a wing, and singing. The article doesn't say what they sing, but I assume it's Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe, by the late Barry White. Our stat of the day, according to CBSNews.com, is that the final bill for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, this comes from a new Brown University study, will come to between $3.7 trillion and $4.4 trillion, including these nation-building efforts, the cost of providing medical care, services, and long-term benefits for veterans. And, of course, interest on what the U.S. borrowed 
to fund these fiascos. Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz pointed out a couple years back that the cost of these, uh, these wars was going to be about $3 trillion, and looks like he may have been a little low. This said from a nation that believes it can't afford universal health care, in which its uh, infrastructure is declining, which we seem to have no money to educate our citizenry with, which is arguing about raising the debt ceiling even higher. Why are we doing all these things? So we can spend $4 trillion in meaningless Asian wars that are accomplishing nothing. Well, it'd be wrong to say they're accomplishing nothing. They are making some really rich people a lot richer. And I say that without a Marxist bone in my body. I got nothing against rich people, only ones that are looting the national treasury. And you know who you are. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for our litigious society run amok with the news that kids going to a summer camp in Maryland must now get parental permission to wear sunscreen. Apparently officials initiated apparently officials initially banned camp counselors from applying sunscreen to campers out of concern for inappropriate touching, but relented and then said it was okay with written consent. Officials said they were trying to walk a fine line between protecting kids' skin and making sure they feel personally safe. Well, here's some rules that may help them in Maryland. Don't apply the sunscreen in areas that are protected from the sun by the swimwear. Stick to that simple common sense rule and I think you'll probably avoid most trouble. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez with the news that the president has apparently lost the support of his intellectual hero. That would be U.S. linguist and activist Noam Chomsky. In an open letter, Chomsky last week urged Chavez to free Maria Lourdes Afiuni, a judge who was arrested in 2009 by the president's secret intelligence police. Her transgression was that she'd ordered the release of a Chavez opponent who'd been jailed for nearly three years pending trial for illegal financial transactions. Human rights advocates say Afiuni was abused in prison before she became sick and was transferred to house arrest. Chavez famously held up a copy of Chomsky's book, Hegemony or Survival, America's Quest for Global Dominance, during his 2006 appearance at the United Nations. Though I have to confess, at that address to the UN, Chavez did get off a pretty rip-snorting good line. Referring to President George W. Bush's appearance on the same lectern the day before, (laughs) Chavez said, the devil was here yesterday. I can still smell the sulfur. Which I have to say did crack up my taxi driver when I was down in Costa Rica. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for prison rights activists with the news that a Michigan prison inmate who says he suffers from chronic masturbation syndrome is suing his jail for the right to read pornography. Yes, evidently convicted bank robber Kyle Richards, age 21, say that because he suffers from CMS, the jail's ban on pornography constitutes cruel and unusual punishment and is clearly designed to, quote, deprive the plaintiff of any sort of sexual gratification, unquote. 
Well, now, on the second point, he's, he's probably right. But although I admit to being no constitutional scholar, I'm pretty sure that the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution does not include the right to masturbate. Or, by extension, the denial of the ability to masturbate constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And, of course, one doesn't need pornography to masturbate. We feel fairly certain that people have been masturbating long before there was any such thing as erotic literature. All right, as follow-up on a couple of things we've talked about on this program in the past, we have the following story, which is that a recent study published in Nature Geoscience by the Japan-based CAMLAND collaboration, which runs an important radiation detector, about half the heat that the Earth generates deep within itself is due to radioactive decay. Reporting on this quoted Stuart Friedman of the U.S. Department of Energy's Berkeley Lab, noting that one thing we can say with near certainty is that radioactive decay alone is not enough to account for Earth's heat energy. Whether the rest is primordial heat or comes from some other source is an unanswered question. Scientists have long believed that the heat probably came from two major sources, primordial heat that's left over from the Earth's fiery formation and the radioactive decay that's been taking place ever since. This matter of uh, primordial heat as bodies fall together to form planetary uh, objects is one reason why we're so interested in the protoplanet Vesta, which we'll talk about with Matt Kaplan in our second segment. Vesta apparently started out to become a planet, started heating up a bit, and something stopped the process. Apparently the fact that not enough material kept smashing into it to become a full-blown planet. But these scientists that did the math to calculate that 44 terawatts of heat is what the Earth generates, uh, well, they figured that About 23 of those terawatts come from radioactive decay, and they broke it down even further. They think 8 terawatts are from uranium, 8 are from thorium, and 4 are from potassium. About 3 are from decays of various isotopes of other elements. We talked in this program some years back about how there may well be a nuclear reactor at the core of the Earth, although the recent reporting said they thought this is doubtful because the core of the Earth is iron and things that like iron. They're blaming this heat on uranium and thorium in the crust. But uh, basically, we really have no idea what's going on down in the center of the Earth and need to know more. This research was using the exotic method of measuring the number of anti-neutrinos emanating from the Earth. And no, to be honest, we don't have the foggiest idea how you count anti-neutrinos. Maybe they smash into real neutrinos and give off energy. I'm not sure. Finding neutrinos is tough enough. Maybe we should put a call to Stuart Friedman over there at, uh, at the Department of Energy's Berkeley Lab and ask him about this. And uh, talking about uranium and thorium and other elements of the periodic table does some follow-up on our talk we had with author Sam Keen about his book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. Since that time, both Discover Magazine and New Scientist had pieces on the elements, And in reading both of them, I learned some, to me, are astonishing things, which I think I'll share. We talked about the rare earth elements at the bottom of the periodic table, which you probably remember from high school. Noted the article in Discover by Hugh Alderson Williams. The name rare earths made sense to 19th century minds. Rare because it seemed at first they came only from Scandinavia, and earths because they occurred in an earthy oxide form from which it was exceptionally hard to obtain the pure metal. Today, it's clear that the rare earths are hardly rare. The most common of them, cerium, ranks 25th in abundance in the earth crust, 
one place ahead of copper. Yttrium is twice as abundant as lead. And in fact, all of the rare earth metals, with the exception of the radioactive promethium, are more common than silver. Article notes the earth's part is also misleading. These elements are actually metals and quite marvelous ones at that. The warm glow of terbium is essential to high-efficiency compact fluorescent bulbs. Europium is widely exploited to make vivid displays for laptop computers and smartphones. And the rare earths also pop up in unexpected places like baseball bats, European currency, and night vision goggles. With their increasing popularity, terbium and europium recently overtook silver in price, reaching $40 an ounce. But we got a lot of great feedback from that that talk on the periodic table. A lot of people (laughs) learned how the periodic table worked for the first time listening to it. One of the key things about it is the columns. The things that are arranged in columns indicate that they're chemically similar because the outer level electrons are basically similar, and that's that does the heavy lifting when it comes to chemistry. Here's something you probably weren't aware of, that uh, back in 1885, the Viennese chemist Carl von Welsbach found that a pinch of the element cerium, at least in the oxide form, mixed together with thorium oxide, which is usefully increases the brightness of gas lamps. You probably have used these on, uh, on Coleman lanterns. Those mantles you insert inside that burn so brightly. Here's something you probably didn't know. In 1885, the Viennese chemist Carl Auer von Welsbach took a pinch of cerium oxide along with some thorium oxide and found that they usefully increased the brightness of a gas lamp. You probably have uh, utilized these in the mantles in, in Coleman lanterns that burn so brightly. Our also discovered that a mixture of cerium and iron readily generates sparks. So he put together an ally, which he modestly called our metal. It's still used to ignite the flames and cigarette lighters. Anyway, you and I may not have realized that we needed elements like neodymium. But New Scientist points out that when you mix it with iron and boron, it makes magnets that are weight for weight 12 times stronger than conventional iron magnets. This is one reason why our latest laptops are so compact and lightweight. And one person who's not a lightweight, and how's that for a segue, is our good pal Will Durst, who has a few things on his mind to share. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say, run for the hills, everybody. Armageddon is imminent. The U.S. economy is about to melt down like a popsicle left at a Palm Springs picnic table. And it's only a matter of time before we descend into the situation that Greece finds itself without the benefit of all that entrancing zither music. Seniors and sick people and soldiers are destined to be tossed into the streets to battle rabid dogs for food. All hell is about to break loose. Then again, maybe not. What is clear is, well, nothing. The one thing we kind of almost pretty much but not really know for sure, unless Congress agrees to raise the debt ceiling by August 2nd, America's authority to borrow money will expire, and the government may or may not shut down. What that means, no one knows. Could be not so good, or it could be really, really bad. And I can hear you saying, hey, schmucko, shutting down the government doesn't sound so bad to me. About time we kicked those freaking freeloaders off the dole. Yes, but you have to understand, one man's pork is another man's bacon. 
Both parties are theatrically posturing to stick to their core principles, demanding that the other side be the one to compromise. The theory being that the other side is more likely to abandon their principles because, hey, let's be honest, they aren't really principles so much as they are re-election talking points. And you know what? They're both right. The Republicans want cuts in entitlement programs, which the president said he'd consider. The Democrats want higher taxes on rich people, which the GOP said they won't consider. And that's pretty much where we stand right now. Although the word stand might be affording the participants a bit too much credit. Skulk, dodge, slink, squirm, creep, crouch, lurk, loiter, weasel, cower. Any of these would seem to be more apropos. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always a pleasure to hear from America's foremost political comic. Let's take a short break and come back and talk about some stuff going on in our solar system. Or at least things we're discovering by taking a look with... Planetary Radio's Matt Kaplan. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. By all means, stay tuned. 